Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Keeper of the Keys. So, the chapter opens at the stroke of midnight, when a giant man named Rubeus Hagrid bursts into the cabin on the rock on Harry's birthday. He gives Harry a birthday cake, and then finally gives him the mysterious letter that the Dursleys have been trying to keep Harry away from, which turns out to be an invitation to attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. He then explains to Harry that Harry is a wizard. Um, He tells Harry about his scar and his powers, and about how his parents died. Um, Aunt Petunia responds with disgust and fear at the idea of having another wizard in the family, while Vernon responds with anger and insults Albus Dumbledore, to which Hagrid responds by giving Dudley a pigtail, and the chapter ends there. In this next section, we'll talk about the title of the chapter and its significance. So, David, what do you think the literal meaning of the chapter title, The Keeper of the Keys, is? Well, it's another chapter title that describes a person. Uh, In this case, it refers to Rubeus Hagrid, who is the Keeper of Keys and Grounds in Hogwarts, which is also how he introduces himself by by his work title. Right. And I think more figuratively, um, we both thought this while rereading the chapter, that Hagrid is really the keeper of the keys to the wizarding world for Harry. Um, Yeah, he's sort of the gatekeeper. Right. And he's the one who um, really unlocks, so to speak, um, (laughs) the world and Harry's entire um, past, what really happened to his parents and his future by, you know, introducing him to Hogwarts. Um, this is a chapter when all the secrets also that have been locked away, um, in, in Harry's past, mostly in Petunia's mind, Mm -hmm. um, come out because of Hagrid's intrusion. So a lot of unlocking metaphors there. It's also kind of ironic. I thought that this is, um, the title, but Hagrid actually breaks down the door instead of using (laughs) any keys. So there's actually no keys being used yet. Um, I also think that we see from this very beginning, chapter how important Hagrid's position is at Hogwarts and how much Dumbledore trusts him. It's the second time we've seen Hagrid be given a critical task from Dumbledore. Um, The first being when he, as he describes, you know, takes Harry from the house after his parents are killed. And, um, you know, we're only four chapters in. And so it really struck me that um, Hagrid is really important, which I always knew. But I I just think that it struck me particularly this time um, how much responsibility he's given and how much he really moves Harry's life and the story forward. Yeah, I mean, it establishes him early as someone that has Dumbledore's full confidence as as a friend and as a, for lack of a better word, follower, I guess. Yeah. Employee. Yeah, and just for Harry, how he's really, I think... His first friend, His first friend and his first sort of father figure in a way, so... Yeah, in a sense. I mean, definitely his first teacher, if you want to call it that teaches him about the world, and gives him some street smarts. Great, so now that we've covered the title of the chapter, why don't we get into more of the plot of the chapter, the real meat of it. So, Maddie, do you want to start by talking about some characters that we're meeting? Yeah, so um, we don't actually meet any new characters in this chapter, but we do meet Hagrid again in a way. We met him 10 years before when he brings Harry to the Dursley's doorstep, but now he's really characterized in the very lovable way that we will know him throughout the series. Um, It really starts to, his character really starts to form in this chapter. Um, Also here, as we'll discuss later on, Petunia really comes out of her shell and reveals 
her feelings about her sister Lily and her family and the Wizarding World. So she really has a big development in her character. And to me, this is one of the most iconic chapters in the whole series. Um, mm, it's very memorable. It moves the plot forward in a huge way, obviously. Um, and I think that this is definitely just one of the chapters that I think everyone really thinks of when they think of Harry Potter. And I think that I do as well. Especially Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I think this is probably the most important chapter in this book. Insofar as like looking at the series as a whole. Definitely. I, I think so. And... I don't know. It's just it's just a great it's just a great imagery yeah. and a great chapter. I mean, when you think about looking back on this series, when you think about book one, it's it's the introduction of Harry to the Wizarding World, right? And that happens in this chapter, is right. he he gets introduced to it. So I think that especially like that scene, "You're a wizard, Harry." I think in that's how they say it in the movie, but I think in the book it's "Harry, you're a wizard," which is <laughs> just different enough to be uh, annoying. Um, but that's a very iconic moment and a pivotal moment in Harry's life. Right, definitely. And then just a couple of things that I noticed um, related to Hagrid and the plot. Um, I forgot that Hagrid's expulsion from Hogwarts comes up already in this chapter. That's a theme for me already so far as we're rereading. <laughs> things that I forget already have come up so early in the um, series. So Yeah, sort of like things that... That won't be fully established until later on, sort right. of getting name dropped throughout these early chapters, right. like Sirius Black and and now Hagrid's expulsion from Hogwarts. Mm -hmm. So I definitely noticed that. Um, and a, a last podcast we actually mentioned, or I had a question about why does Hagrid barge in at exactly midnight on Harry's birthday, and mm -hmm. was there some sort of mandate that he couldn't find him before then, or what was up with that? And we get somewhat of an answer there, which is. Um, that in the letter that from McGonagall to Harry about his acceptance to Hogwarts, it says, we await your owl no later than July 31st, which is that day starting at midnight and also Harry's birthday. So mm -hmm. I know you had some other questions about that further as well. Well, I just think, I mean, this, this partly answers our question previously, which is, is there some rule in the magical world that you can't, you know, you can't break that wall until their 11 or their 11th birthday. I think this definitely establishes that in the context of the world, they're really just going to that last resort option of having having Hagrid pay you a visit on the last possible day of accepting the offer, um, which just so happens to be Harry's birthday. However, I think that the author did plan that intentionally for it sort of to be a, a mythic gothic moment of uh you know sort of climax in that way that it happened on harry's birthday um i don't think it's a coincidence that she made it july 31st that they need the answer and not say august 15th or august 1st or something else so i think she is jk rowling is trying to attach some special significance to that event by by having it take place not only on the last day that they need the answer by but also harry's birthday yeah, it, the more I think about it, the more it actually kind of bothers me that they're the same day. I kind of wish that it was <laughs> August 1st or something, just because it sort of leads to those questions of like... It'd make a little more sense if it was why August Why is it 1st. actually Harry's birthday? But anyway, it, we got somewhat of an answer there. Yeah. For my part in this chapter, I wanted to talk about um, the sort of pivotal revelatory moment um, where Hagrid reveals Harry's past and his destiny to him and how each of our four characters... Vernon, Petunia, Dudley, and Harry respond to um, both Hagrid's arrival and the revelation that he gives Harry. 
Um, so starting with um, Dudley, really quick, he just responds the same sort of way that he's been in the last chapter, but more so. In the last chapter, he was sort of in shock. He didn't really know what was going on. He didn't really know how to respond. He was whining a lot. In this chapter, he responds by being very frozen with fear. He doesn't say anything the whole chapter, and he barely moves, even at the end when he gets his um, bottom turned into a pig's tail. And Harry, um, like in the last chapter, responds with sort of an excited curiosity. He seems eager um, and even anxious to get all this information out of Hagrid. Uh, I just want to say that his ability to have an open mind when confronted with something that would seem incomprehensible to most people is uh, a big character trait of his. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. So as you mentioned with Dudley and Harry responding similarly as they did um, in the last chapter, Vernon also responds much as he has in the past, basically the entire book, with this fear of the unknown, this fear of magic. Um, And it's really, you know, it's revealed that he brought a rifle with him to the hut. So he's really scared and is willing to, you know, potentially kill something that is um, going to be you know, a representative of this unknown wizarding world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's more of his character. I think it's more of the same from from Vernon, but it is sort of a a big theme in the books um, overall, which is which is a classical human failure, which is ignorance and fear and their relationship, and and sometimes they have a causal relationship that sort of creates a vicious cycle where. It doesn't matter which one of them begets the other, but say you're ignorant about something and so you learn to fear it because of that ignorance, but because of that fear, you're going to be less able to or willing to learn about it, which will make you unable to overcome that fear. Um, And so they each feed into the other. Um, And this happens over and over in the books. We see it with muggles fearing wizards. We see it with wizards fearing muggles. We see it with you know, pure-blood wizards fearing muggle-borns, and we see it with everything from magical creatures to werewolves to vampires and Voldemort, everything in between. I think, really represents that as well, because he... His fear of death, maybe? His fear of death and also kind of of love. The An fact attachment, that he, yeah. Yeah, like that. So, yeah, that's really Without is a getting big too theme. much into his psychoses. But. All right. No, I think that it is... You're right, it's a huge, huge theme in the book, and I think it's interesting that... It's exemplified so clearly in Vernon, who is our first character. We're in his, you know, the first yeah, character. Yeah, starts off the book in his head. In yeah. his head, and really, it's it's really interesting um, that he represents kind of that major theme. Yeah, and again, I want to go back to Harry to contrast the two of them, um, because where Vernon responds to this whole situation of new and potentially troubling information. Something that is so shocking that he could never believe in it. Harry responds to the same information and the same revelations with just a complete willingness to accept that reality and his place in it, um, which is totally antithetical to that notion of fear and ignorance. Um, it, it cements him as a very open-minded and, and thoughtful, trusting character who, who is willing to believe in fantastical things and and to believe in his acceptance into that into that world. Um, so I, yeah, I just wanted to contrast the two of them because it's so clearly laid out in this chapter in that way. Yeah, and I wonder, not to talk too much about this, but I wonder how um, maybe 
because Harry's life has been so bad up to this point, maybe he's just more willing to believe that there is this something magical and, I don't know, something... He's more willing to believe that because he's like, there must be something out there that's not, like, right. my life. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like the fairy tale comparison, right? Mm-hmm. It's the protagonist who has their head in the clouds and they believe that they have a greater destiny or whatever. I mean, it's like the fairy godmother showing up to Cinderella and Cinderella is not like, I'm going crazy. Cinderella's like, oh, yeah, I have a fairy godmother. Let's, <laughs> yeah. This is great. Yeah. So it's it's exactly like that. It's Hagrid is the fairy godmother coming to take Harry away. And Harry is like, great, let's go. Yeah. He's not like, this is crazy. The Dursers are setting me up for some prank. He's right. like, this is real, and I believe it. So I think that Petunia's response to Hagrid and this revealing of the secret of the wizarding world is the most interesting. Um, I agree, definitely. She really responds by completely breaking down and spilling out all these secrets, as I mentioned before, about... Mm. Um, and feelings. And feelings, yeah. Secrets and feelings about um, Lily, her family, and the magical world. And we really see this um, theme that will come up later as well about how Petunia was probably really jealous of her sister, even though she called her a freak. Um, you know, she was jealous because she was special and she was loved and taken away and did amazing at this school that Petunia could not have gone to even if she wanted to. And and it's clear that she did want it later on. Right. So it's just really interesting. And I think we both really, I don't know, got this, to this point of empathy with Petunia in this chapter because, well, at least I did more than I ever I think I understood her more. I don't think I... I don't think I really empathize with her position, but I understand. I guess I don't empathize with her actions, but I think I empathize with like past Petunia more because of this idea of, you know, having a sibling and then having them be chosen for this special thing. And you can't, you can't join because you don't have the powers. Like you just are normal and it's not like you did anything wrong. It's just that you were born that way. Right. And, um, you know, we talked about, how she just really is obsessed with things being normal, just like Vernon and ordinary, and just gets really into her boring life. And I think that she kind of has to tell herself that they're freaks and that she's normal, um, just like Vernon does, but it's in a different way where she's like, she has to tell herself that because she knows that deep down she really wishes that she were special in the way that Lily was. And just this complex complexity of probably you know hating her sister but also missing her and probably being sad that she is dead even though she mm-hmm. you know they were probably estranged it's just a really complicated situation for petunia I think. yeah no it is really complicated i think she's one of the more complicated characters in the whole series and we don't quite see enough of her to really get a clear picture always of what she's thinking but um we do get more of it each book so mm-hmm. definitely look forward to reading more about that as we go through it but i think i think really ultimately her feelings in this particular chapter stem from just this pent-up emotion that she's been feeling for over a decade since harry's parents deaths um and when they got harry dumped on their doorstep she's just been penting this up you know and as we mentioned like she leads a very boring life i think that was really in response to 
as we later find out. Um, she was rejected from Hogwarts by Dumbledore, who told her, I'm sorry, you don't have magical powers, you can't come here. Um, but, you know, thank you for sending me that letter. It's really, really nice. Um, and, you know, we hope that you have a good life anyway. She dealt with that rejection by basically being as normal, quote-unquote, as possible. You know, marrying a very boring man who is obsessed with being normal, moving to a boring neighborhood with boring problems, pretending to be very normal, all while knowing deep down that, that there is this crazy other world behind the facade. Um, but her pretending that it doesn't exist is critical to her sort of rejection of the magical world because it rejected her, and so she feels like she needs to prove something about what normal is to herself. In this next section, we will talk about the writing and style of the chapter. So, David, what did you notice? So, I noticed that um, J.K. Rowling does a really great job of showing, not telling in this chapter about Voldemort, who is sort of a new character. I mean, he was mentioned in chapter one as sort of like the the big bad. Um, but she does a really great job of describing him through Hagrid as a very convincingly evil and literally dreadful, as in like people dread him, character without actually telling us that much about him. Um, we don't know his true name or his past or really anything about what drives him, but we learn that, for example, even the giant scary-looking Hagrid doesn't dare say Voldemort out loud unless he absolutely has to, um, and when he does, he shudders as though the name itself is a curse. Yeah, I think that's... I think that's really interesting. I think that really adds to the fear of um, yeah, just not saying definitely. the name. I remember that, especially when I, you know, first reading the book is that, oh, wow, they don't even say his name. I mean, that's now knowing so much about it, it's hard to sort of get back into the mindset. But I think it was a really good move on her part to say, mm -hmm. you know, they're not going to say his name and it's going to be really scary when somebody does. Yeah, I mean, they, she even alludes to it through other characters like directly Ron. by by saying, having Hermione say, for example, fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. Mm -hmm. You know, she's saying that because she's reminding the reader that this is a very scary person and that this is a psychological tool that Voldemort, through J.K. Rowling, is using to manipulate people into fearing him more by making it, you know, scary to say his name even. Yeah. That that's just increasing the the terror that people feel, you know, and despite the fact that he's been gone for 10 years, this is still happening. People are still afraid to even mention him. There seems to be sort of a lingering fear among wizards about his sort of weird circumstances of his disappearance. A lot of people think that he might come back. Hagrid in particular says that he thinks people that think that Voldemort's gone forever is like Codswallop. He says he's just biding his time trying to consolidate enough power to rise again someday, which we know he will eventually do in about four years. We also learn um, from Hagrid this time um, and from McGonagall in chapter one that Dumbledore is the only person that Voldemort was ever afraid of. And this further cements Dumbledore's position within the series as sort of the, the white knight antithesis of Voldemort's black knight, you know, sort of like the 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 leader, the beacon of hope for the followers of good against what Hagrid called the dark side. Yeah, I think that this that's another one of those things that I forgot was mentioned so early, this idea of Dumbledore versus Voldemort as, you know, the only one he ever fe feared. I think 
that's something that's throughout the series. But again, I didn't really remember that it was mentioned basically in the same breath as discussing Voldemort, you're mm-hmm. saying, um, but Dumbledore is the only one who's yeah. against or can defeat him or whatever, you know, just that he fears. So I think that is And again, is this is Hagrid who's saying it, right? Right. So Hagrid, who has such a fierce loyalty to Dumbledore, as demonstrated in this chapter, um, and, and Dumbledore, who inspires such loyalty and is apparently powerful enough or is maybe the only one powerful enough to stand against Voldemort in his prime. So there were just a few other things that I noticed about the writing in this chapter. Um, I found this chapter to be written very theatrically, almost like a scene from a play. Um, I'm not. Yeah, there was a lot of dialogue in it. There's a lot there? of dialogue, and you can just really imagine this. I think it also has to do with um, the quote that I'll read in a minute, which is Hagrid's entrance, um, which is a very dramatic and theatrical entrance, mm-hmm, and you can sure. just sort of um you know picture this as a very dramatic scene almost like a one act of a play um um i don't know i've just been thinking about that lately with some of these scenes and also there's a lot of comedy um again you know related to hagrid and the dursleys being scared uh the pigtail but it's also clearly very dramatic definitely the most dramatic chapter so far and one of the most you know climactic even in the series Mm -hmm. um just that it happened so early on um yeah that that actually is a really good point and i didn't think about this when i was reading it but you're right like this is a very dramatic scene but here again jk rowling is showcasing her talent for writing light-hearted stuff into really dramatic moments and we have to remember this is written as a children's book and obviously it's for a much larger audience than that but to appeal to children you can't make things really really dark all the time they have to be sort of light-hearted at times and so even in this very dramatic chapter there are things like Hagrid twisting the barrel of a rifle into a knot and throwing it away. You know, that's a funny image. And Hagrid failing to cast the spell to turn Dudley into a pig, but instead putting a curly cue on his butt. Uh, and then saying, you know, candidly that he looked so much like a pig, there wasn't much more I could do. Uh, right. So it's, it's, these, it's these funny moments that, that keep it lighthearted, and she's very good at that. Yeah, and... We can talk more about this, obviously, in later books, but I I think it will be interesting for us to sort of monitor um, the amount of lightheartedness she puts into her books. I think it definitely decreases as time goes on yeah. in terms of, you know, the kids getting older and just things in the world getting darker. But yeah. it's kind of interesting because I think she keeps it throughout, um, but obviously um, it gets... A lot darker. Yeah, the mood of the books changes pretty dramatically as we go on. But I think she's really talented at setting the mood and knowing what kind of mood she wants to set. Yeah. Um, I think that this, that is one of her greatest talents as a writer. And then we also mentioned, you mentioned this related to Voldemort, but just in general, we mentioned um, an information dump in chapter one when right. McGonagall and Dumbledore are discussing things that we said they probably really wouldn't be discussing, at least in that way. Um but this is something done, you know, an information dump done really well because um, Harry doesn't know any of this information. He needs to learn it all. Right, so right. he, you know, it's totally fine that Hagrid is explaining all this stuff about the world. So that's, it's a good scene um, in that regard as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I almost think in a lot of ways, um, J.K. Rowling probably could have removed entirely the first information dump. And just put it all here because mm, if you think about yeah. it like we didn't really need to know 
all of that stuff in the first chapter. Probably could have waited until this chapter, and it would have given us a little bit more of a sense of suspense about, um, you know, what is what does all this mean? What is the world? Are are, are wizards real? Is magic real? All yeah. that stuff. We sort of get that spoiled for us in the first chapter. Whereas, I think if you held off until chapter four and then told the reader at the same time as Hagrid is telling Harry, maybe that's a little bit more tension, a little bit more drama. Yeah, I think I I definitely see that point, but I also think that um, it probably works better this way because I think we would be, I don't know, in some it's hard to say, but I think in some ways we might be less engaged if we didn't get any information at the beginning. And I also think that this is still an information dump, even though it's done right. well. And I think that we would get overwhelmed by enough information. Like this is sort of just enough to digest in one chapter and... Um, if you had to add all the other, you know, stuff from the first chapter as well, it might not have worked as well. But. Maybe. I just, I can't get over the idea of of a book opening on a little less information, um, just enough that we get a sense that maybe there's something out there as a destiny for, for our protagonist, but not so much that we are certain of it, you know, because... With that first chapter opening, we know already that Harry is special and that he was the only survivor of an attack that killed his parents and that people are saying he's the boy who lived and that he's unique. So we already know that he's not going to be living at Privet Drive forever. He's going to go off on a wild adventure and yeah, learn no, magic I, and all I, this stuff. I see but, your point. I see your point. maybe it would have been a little better if they had maybe told us that he was special but not about magic or that there is magic but not that he's special, you know, one of the two kind of thing. I'm not exactly sure how I would do that, but I, I just can't help but wonder whether that might have been a better way of doing it. Yeah, either way. I don't want to criticize J.K. <laughs> Rowling too much because no, 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 I not think criticizing, just saying she's doing really well here. I mean, this book came out 20 years ago, so we've had a lot of time to think about it. We have. Um... Clearly. And then the other thing that I was thinking of uh, was that, so Harry um, obviously learns what happens to his parents, but his memory of his parents' death um, comes back to him sort of throughout the series in different ways. And he remembers um, another detail this night when Hagrid is describing to him um, his parents' death, which is the high, cold, cruel laugh of Voldemort, which he doesn't exactly know at this point, but he he remembers that laugh, and that's something mm-hmm. that will always be associated with this sort of flashback that he will get um, in future chapters. Right, right. Especially when we get to book three and we're talking about Dementors and stuff, that high, cold, cruel laugh will be in just about every description. Mm-hmm. Again, not something that I remembered that he remembered this early. <laughs> um, so there's a lot in this chapter. So let's talk about our favorite quotes from this chapter. Madeline, what was your favorite quote? So my favorite quote was towards the beginning of the chapter on pages 46 and 47. It begins, A giant of a man was standing in the doorway. His face was almost completely hidden by a long shaggy mane of hair and a wild tangled beard, but you could make out his eyes glinting like black beetles under all that hair. The giant squeezed his way into the hut, stooping so that his head just brushed the ceiling. He bent down, picked up the door, and fitted it easily back into its frame. The noise of the storm outside dropped a little. He turned to look at them all. 
Couldn't make us a cup of tea, could you? It's not been an easy journey. <laughs> um, so this was my favorite quote because, again, this sort of reminded me of a dramatic theatrical entrance. Um, and I just think it's a great entrance for Hagrid to have, especially since we've already had one great description of him in chapter one. This just sort of cements it for him and it's almost like Hagrid in action. Um, I love the idea of him putting the door back into the frame mm-hmm. um, and just the, the quote at the end about, you know, the cup is he and that's just a perfect first line to introduce Hagrid with because it just really kind of represents him and his humor and gruffness and um, it's yeah, yeah, for a great sure. thing. And, and it illustrates so many things about him in just a short few lines, but um, one thing that I always loved about the movie Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was that it did this particular moment very, very well, mm-hmm. where it has all this, again, gothic imagery, lightning outside, the the door breaks down and there's a giant figure, shadowy, <laughs> silhouetted against the lightning, who walks into the frame and his boots are shaking the hut as he walks, and then uh, he comes into focus. And then he just quickly bends down, picks up the door, puts it back into the frame and goes, ah, all right, well, uh, could you make us a cup of tea? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just Hagrid, you know? Yeah. He's just like, well, I didn't want to have to break the door down, but yeah. I did, but I fixed it. So everything's good now, right? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it's like, uh, it's not what you expect. And that's where the humor comes from. You expect him to be very scary, imposing character, but in fact, he's... Well, he's scary to Uncle Vernon, but to the reader, he's charming and funny. And what did you choose as your favorite quote? Well, I picked um, the letter that has been so elusive, and then the, the passage just after it, and you'll see why in a second. But the letter reads, Dear Mr. Potter, we are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Please find enclosed a list of all necessary books and equipment, Term begins on September 1. We await your owl by no later than July 31. Yours sincerely, Minerva McGonagall, Deputy Headmistress. Questions exploded inside Harry's head like fireworks, and he couldn't decide which to ask first. After a few minutes, he stammered, What does it mean, they await my owl? And so I picked that passage, as you might imagine, because, um, as I alluded to earlier, it illustrates how how ready Harry was to accept his place in this new world and and what it means for him in the sense that if an ordinary person, your average child, say, without knowing anything about magic at all, not having read a single book about magic in their life, if the average child were to receive a letter in the mail saying this, they would probably respond with, some combination of bewilderment and uh, denial. You know, they would probably respond by saying, this can't be real, this is a prank, this is a joke, this isn't real for me, this is addressed to somebody else, you're making this up. This is not possible. It's not possible for magic to be real. But Harry doesn't respond with anything like that. Instead, he says, what do you mean they're awaiting my owl? What does that mean? Well, I actually, I'm going to a little bit disagree because I actually think that this is, I mean, I agree with your, his, you know, curiosity and open-mindedness and all that, but I actually think this is exactly how a child would respond because when you actually read the letter, besides the 
Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry part. It's a pretty, <laughs> like, basic letter about, like, you've been accepted to a school and get your books now. Um, right, it's very normal sounding. It's very normal. And the only, like, abnormal thing is we await your owl. And that would also catch me off guard, I feel like, especially with your kind of in shock and you're trying to process everything. If you just take one line and you're like, wait, I sort of grasp this, but what's this about an owl? I kind of think that that's a yeah. pretty normal response. Um, I just think I would say witchcraft and wizardry, that's not real. Yeah. I think that would be my response. Yeah. And I mean, that makes a lot of sense too, but it is, it but is kind goes, of interesting. Harry goes right for the owl. And I just think that's that's a very illustrative of his character. I mean, he's very curious, thoughtful, but he's willing to accept this new world in, in a very real way. Uh, and he has his doubts, um, as we see later on in the chapter. He insists he can't be a wizard. But his defenses fall pretty quickly. All Hagrid has to do is chuckle to himself and say, Oh, not a wizard, huh? Well, you never made anything happen when you were angry or scared. And then Harry thinks about it for a minute and he goes... Oh yeah, I did. I did do some pretty weird stuff, and then Hagrid's like, "Yeah, see." Yeah, I think he always sort of must have known that something, um, something was different. Something about was him. different. Yeah, he was so ready to believe it. He he just he knew he was special. He didn't know how, and he didn't know why. And it wasn't in the same way that Tom Riddle knew he was special in in the sixth book later on. It was it was more of an innocent thing where Harry was just like. Oh, well, that makes sense. It wasn't like a, yes, you're right, I am special. It was mm-hmm. more of like a, oh, I might be special. Mm-hmm. So in our final section, we'll talk about the new thing that we noticed in this chapter or something that we had a new perspective on this time around. So, David, what was the thing that stood out for you? Yeah, so um, I thought about um, the name thing a lot, so when Hagrid is really unwilling to say Voldemort's name. Um, And we know that in later books during the war, um, Voldemort eventually installs a taboo on his name that makes it so that whenever people say Voldemort, it breaks magical protections. It allows him to immediately locate people that that say that, um, which it becomes a huge plot point in Deathly Hallows. Instead of people saying, you know who, or he who must not be named, or the Dark Lord, if they say Voldemort, then all of a sudden people can find them. Um, so given how fearful people like Hagrid and McGonagall are of saying Voldemort out loud, is it possible that Voldemort did at some point in the first Wizarding War institute a similar sort of taboo? So I thought about that possibility. I'm not sure. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense because I don't think he was ever in control of the Ministry of Magic back then, but we don't really know a lot about the first war either. Yeah, it may not make sense logistically, but I think it wouldn't make actually more sense in terms of their fear level with saying it even now because, you know, even though it's a good sort of device that she uses to, you know, incite fear in the reader, it still doesn't make a lot of sense that they would be that scared to say the name. So maybe there there was something like that or maybe they were just, you know, worried about, people were always worried about spies or that there would be people on the dark side who would sort of... Mm -hmm be hearing what you were talking about and i don't know it that is interesting to think about yeah it might be that too i think that's a good idea um and then i also noticed um some similarities that we're already seeing between harry and voldemort so both have titles basically harry's right now is the boy who lived he'll later get the title the chosen one in some later books 
Um, and, you know, Voldemort has the titles Dark Lord, You Must Not Be Named, You Know Who. Um, and, of course, Voldemort is More a Voldemort title. Is title it's, yeah. a, it's a name that he took, but it's also a title. Um, although, obviously, the difference is that nobody is afraid of saying Harry Potter's name because uh, he's just a regular wizard in every yeah. other sense. But it does both show them as being sort of already very mythical kind of yeah, mythic, figures. mythic figures, worthy of respect. You know, legend. And what what was the thing that you noticed this time around? Um, there was a particular line that I found really interesting related to Harry's scar when Hagrid is sort of saying to Harry, did you ever wonder how you got your scar? Um, and his explanation is something like, that's what you get when an evil curse touches you. Which I just thought was interesting because we know that Harry is a horcrux. And I was just thinking about... And that's about, where the scar comes from. And that's where the scar comes from. So it's just interesting because I was wondering, you know, does anyone else actually have a scar like that just from a curse? Which I think the answer is probably no. Um, but I just thought it was interesting that the phrasing of that is that's what you get when it touches you. It kind of just seems like something that the entire wizarding world inferred just from Harry's particular experience. And if that's not the case, mm-hmm. then, you know, maybe maybe there are other people that have scars from curses and, you know, are other people ever horcruxes? It's just interesting to kind of think about. Yeah, I mean, the scar is like the pivotal symbol in the books. I think it's probably the most significant thing that we could talk about. We could probably spend an hour talking about it. But just for this context, um, I think there are other curse scars in the world, but there aren't any from the killing curse because no one's ever survived it before. Right. So I think Dumbledore probably theorized that the mark, the scar, the lightning scar comes from the killing curse and that it's connected to the Horcrux, but he doesn't tell people the second part. He just tells people, okay, well, it's connected to the curse that failed. Because um, he himself has a has a scar on his left knee. He mentions this in this book. That's a perfect map of the London Underground. Other people we've seen have cursed scars. Moody has some things on his face. You know, he's missing an eye and got chunks out of his nose and stuff. Fred gets his ear cursed off. Um, obviously, no one else in the world is going to have a killing curse of Cadavra scar. But um, I think if you're a run-of-the-mill wizard and Dumbledore says, you know, I think it's probably from that. I think you probably believe Dumbledore. Yeah. And it is just kind of interesting to think about the scar and the, you know, the lightning shape of the scar, you know, is that kind of random how it hit him? You know, is that, is that a significant shape? It obviously is now after it's on Harry, but mm. just interesting to think about, you know, does, is the scar kind of arbitrary and just, you know, a symbol of this, a symbol of this Horcrux slash the curse that hit him or is it just the lightning shape and the location does it have something you know in particular it's I think just probably i think probably the the i don't know if there are going to be rules in the wizarding world that would apply to this i think the author chose lightning as uh, for a very specific reason which is that lightning um has a certain mythic sort of tendency to it right of course i'm just and, wondering and it's like instantaneous the killing curse we know is instantaneous mm-hmm. i believe that was probably the point where he touched harry's forehead with the wand is at that point yeah is where the lightning bolt you know happened also um as is referenced in 
Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, the tarot card Lightning Struck Tower is uh, a tarot card that indicates disaster or calamity. Mm-hmm. Um, and which we know not only did Voldemort wreak disaster upon Harry's family, but also upon Harry's soul by accidentally attaching a piece of himself to it. And so in that way, it marks him as sort of a bearer of disaster and calamity, not due to his own fault or things that he does, but just in terms of his fate. And um, I think lightning is also connected to fate a little bit. You know, we can connect it to Thor and Zeus, the gods. Um, We can connect it to the sort of randomness of lightning, where if you get struck by lightning, you know, it it may just be dumb luck or it may be that you were fated to be struck by lightning. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons that she chose lightning to to symbolize Harry's scar, but yeah, definitely. I'm I was more thinking just you know is there is there a rule or significance in the wizarding world? But you know like if the we physics can answer that, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if we can answer that. All right, well that will wrap up uh, this episode of Harry Podcast, Harry Podcast, and the Keeper of the Keys. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.